0: welcome to the defense and aerospace reports technology report sponsored by gm defense i'm your host vago maradian joining us today is dr bill Connolly, a senior vice president and chief technology officer at Mercury Systems, where he oversees the technical vision for the $1 billion company that specializes in open architecture, computer hardware and software, embedded processing modules, avionics mission computers and displays, rugged computer servers, and trusted microelectronics. Before joining Mercury, Bill was the director for electronic warfare in the office of the Secretary of Defense was a program manager at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where he was focused on electronic warfare and started his civilian career as an engineer for the United States Navy. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, L3Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control, and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting. Bill, thanks so very much for joining us, and it's uh, great talking to you again. Thanks, Fago. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, We uh, met uh, we, or rather, I should say, we saw each other uh, because we'd met before. But we saw each other at South by Southwest uh, in sunny Austin uh, just before uh, a panel discussion uh, that you were part of, and Eric Fanning was was part of that as well. Kim Kreider uh, was was uh, on uh, on the panel as well, and you uh, showed everybody a hard disk for space applications that actually wouldn't have been possible. Uh, even seven years uh, ago, without major commercial industry advancements, and so that sort of sparked uh, my interest to sort of get your sense that every time we have this conversation with with many technologists, you know, it, it ends up becoming a very top line. You know, uh, you know, it's about artificial intelligence and machine learning and computing and quantum computing, and there's some nano thrown in there and materials, but but ultimately, there's so much innovation happening across commercial, academia, industry, and and globally, given how technolog- technology has been leveled. What are the things that you think are going to be the most enabling technologies that are actually at a sub-level, even at a drive level, that yeah. in the next five to seven years are are going to either improve how we're doing things or actually completely change how we do things.
1: So an, an awesome question to, you know, kind of hit the ground running on, right? So so I think when you look at what's happening across largely our entire industrial base, which really is our innovation base as a nation, as a globe, uh, you know, for where we are today, one of those major contributions is really that need for speed to market. Um, and that's easy to say, right? And at the buzzword level, you go, speed to market, got it. Okay, what does that mean to me? Um, I think when you peel that back and you look underneath the hood, what that really turns into is a conversation around open standards, modularity, therefore the ability to get reuse of intellectual property. And while oftentimes we talk about AI and machine learning at a very high level, we actually no longer see data as an output of a system that you generate once you've built it, but we see data as an input to a system used to make it better. Um, so I think there's some, some kind of you know, things that are very specific at that technology level. But I think we also could bring that up and we actually could spend a little bit of time talking as well about what's changing about how we want to approach technology and why we want to use technology as a human differently. So let's take
0: both of those pieces, right? What do you think from an enablement standpoint are things that you're watching as a chief technology officer that you think is going to have the biggest needle movers, Um, you know, whether it's from microelectronic standpoint, uh, whether it's from an architectural standpoint, what are the things that you're seeing as you look five to 10 to 15 years out that you
1: think are going to be kind of the highest payoff things? The entire ecosystem around processing is, is fundamentally changing for where we are today. Um, and so it's easy to kind of touch on the, you know, Hey, think back 15 years ago when most of us where were, there was this new thing called a smartphone, but we didn't really know exactly what that meant to us. If you look at where that is today, that expectation of having a globally connected world where I can access whatever data, whatever insight, whatever information it is that I need. Um, one of my, my favorite jokes to make, obviously, is that we say that we live in the information age. In actuality, I think we live in the data age. One look at my email inbox, I am drowning in data each day but I'm always trying to figure out what is that necessary information to get to. That's true for all of us in business. It's true for everyone, I believe, in government that's trying to make good decisions. And it's certainly true when you look at defense applications, right? What is the information that is going to allow a commander to make the right decision at that moment in time? How do they have confidence and trust in that data that they're going to use? How does that bubble up? And how do they do that? When you peel that back, though, and you look at what's happening with advanced semiconductors, What's happening with the processing architectures, which is of what allows data to go into a data center over a piece of optical fiber, be processed, and then generate that answer that comes back. That's one thing to do when the network is laid with fiber. It's very different to do in a defense application when that network is wireless and may or may not be up at that exact instant that you want it to be. And when people talk about computing at the edge, that's
0: basically what you're talking about, right? Have a distributed system that does this processing at speed and be able to do it in scale. What's the trick to doing that in a useful way and in an environment that actually may be interrupted, right? So right. when we're looking at this data, you, you want it to be, you know, it's sort of like when we upload an audio file or a, or a video file, right? It, 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 as long as everything's working fine, that's great. But actually, if it's been interrupted, it's kind of really problematic <laughs> yep. and, and becomes a lot more complicated, right? How do, how do we need to think about the problem, uh, in order to be able to get the best use out of the technology that we have or expect to get, I guess, right? Aren't right. we have
1: to think architecturally about this? Yep. So, so in my opinion, there's there's three legs on that stool. There's there's the data leg, right? So, what is that individual sensor that is out there forward deployed? What data is that sensor generating? There is the processing side of it. Where is that you know that the so-called cloud, right? That data center that I want to move the data back to. And what is that communications link? Um, and and broadly at the architecture level, you have those three elements, but it's interesting, right? Because we don't have to think about the processing center as being some you know data center located physically somewhere in the United States. We actually can bring the processing to the data, which now means the communication side of that problem becomes a lot easier to solve. Alternatively, if you're willing to say, hey, I'm gonna actually change my sensor and how my sensor does a little bit of pre-processing, so I'm going to bring down the amount of data that I have to transmit by an order of magnitude, if not three, you now suddenly can stop talking about sending all the raw data back, but sending what is that data going to be used for? The other thing that shows up that I think is a little bit special in defense problems is what is the acceptable level of latency of a piece of data? Um, right? If you, if you were to ask you know, Ukrainian forces today, um, I know exactly where the Russian tank is that, that you want to go ahead and strike. And they go, that's great. So where is the tank now? And you say, well, I know where it was yesterday because that's when I, you know, I had my sensor on it. And they go, awesome, but I can't do anything useful with that, right? So the right data, if it isn't delivered in time in a defense um, application actually does almost no good. So what do you have to do in low latency? That's gonna be something where you have to bring the processing to the edge in comparison what is the data that you need to bring back and you need to aggregate? And only through the aggregation of that do you really get to that decision quality insight that you're going to go ahead and use. But it's really that architectural trade of the data being generated by a diverse number of sensors, the communications link to be able to flow that data somewhere, and how much processing do you have either at that you know physically remote station that you want to go ahead and use to aggregate, or how much of that processing do you want to push as far forward to the tip of the spear as you possibly can. So technologically speaking,
0: what are the commercial developments that you see will be most significant to allow us to do this? Is it a processing thing? Is it a storage thing? Is it, um, what what are the elements of it that help you achieve this nirvana and 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 the follow up to this is how we adapt it right, w- which is sort of the secret sauce. But what are the things you see out there that, given this problem set, you think are going to affect it, and 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 in what time scale? Yep. Five years, ten years, what happens? Yeah.
1: So so I I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to commit. You know what is uh, what is the future going to look a decade out? Um, it obviously gets, uh, gets really hard to do that. I, I think there's some themes we can hit that are going to matter a decade out, But when, when we look out over the next kind of five years, um, you know, what are, what are those things that are, are going to really change how we build a product um, and ultimately what gets fielded with a, uh, with a set of defense capabilities? Um, a couple of things nearly immediately come to mind, right? And so the, the first one is largely around that, that conversation around cloud. But if you think about what is it the cloud really changes to me, the user, what the cloud changes to me, the user, is it doesn't matter which one of my devices pick I pick up, I'm accessing the exact same underlying file, the exact same underlying data, the exact same underlying information, but I can interact with it through multiple different devices in, in a way that is transparent. What actually that means, though, when you look underneath the hood is It means I don't have one copy of each of these different things scattered across a half dozen different devices. I have one copy that anybody can access. And so the real, you know, kind of, you know, weapon systems defense implication of that is what that now means is I don't have to make a half dozen copies of each piece of data. I can capture the data once, I can process the data once, and I now can deliver the insight that needs to go to a commander, to a soldier that is on the ground that needs to come back to someone inside of the United States and get aggregated for more of a strategic level look. That same data can go to somebody in the intelligence community or somebody on the tactical side. I don't need to make six copies of it. What that does mean though is multi-layer security inside of my system becomes increasingly important, but my hard drive and my storage requirements actually start to go down in comparison to what they would have been if we would have stuck with a more legacy architecture. So
0: is this more of a technological horsepower problem? Or is this more smarter standards? Right? I mean, we've been struggling as a defense department, and I think a defense community and ecosystem, right, to be able to achieve that degree of standardization, that uh, right, I mean, that, that's at the heart of the joint all domain command and control system, right? They're like having some sort of unitary data standard, which I know the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center has been working on. How are we making enough progress to create those data rules, that data standardization that makes it easier for Dr. Bill Connolly, the Dr. Bill Connollys out of, of the world, To be able to actually help the customer the way the customer has to be helped, if if you get my meaning,
1: right? Yep. So so the the first the first one that I would offer, and and again we can go on a philosophical tangent here for a few minutes, right? Is there there always is this perception that the revolving door is a bad thing? Um, There is also a perception that everybody in industry is biased only toward you know hey this is design your architecture so it requires my widget. And in an actuality, I would say, um, both on the the in uniform side, the civilian side of the Department of Defense, in inside of those of us that are being innovative for defense programs and applications, as well as those that are being innovative for purely commercial non-defense applications, there's a bunch of really great Americans, right? And how do we keep that in mind? And how do we leverage the best of the ideas and the insights that come from each of those individuals as a person? As a company, as an organization, profit, nonprofit, wherever it is that they may be, such that we ultimately get to that optimum architecture. The other thing that I would say is too often we get focused on, hey, it's 2022. What is the what is the architecture that I need to build? And then we turn around in 2032 and we go, why do I have this legacy network thing? That is this, you know, monstrosity that I've been, you know, trying to, you know, continuously upgrade and you know tweak and bolt a little bit more onto. And why did those guys back in 2022 ever do it in that way? That was silly, um, right? Because with with hindsight being 2020, um, they they can look and and they can say why did why did you pick that architecture, right? But ultimately, if we tap into everyone to get that architecture right, I think we will be much more impressed and happy with what we get. Break. Too often today, I believe that you see someone sitting on the government side of the table that goes, hey, I'm responsible for defining this architecture, and I'm a really smart guy or gal. I'm going to roll my sleeves up with my team, and I'm going to go figure out the architecture. And they optimize it in a way that makes a lot of sense for where they sit. And that thing gets turned into some sort of you know, request for proposals, which flows out to industry. A prime integrator looks at it and goes, well, that isn't what I would have done, but I can live with it. I'm going to decompose the problem, and now I need to go find someone in my supply chain that can do this, 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 and this. And then it gets down into the supply chain, and you look and you go, okay, guys, um, I can do that, but whew, that just became a cost and schedule driver, but this is what you asked for. All of us are playing you know, to the same, uh, the same equal footing. This is what you want. Let's go build it, right? I think that anyone who looks at that holistically through a value chain lens would say, wait. I optimized for what made sense at that highest level and kind of followed the flow of the money. But if I actually wanted to get value out of this ecosystem, I would have done a tops down and a bottoms up. And, and candidly, we often think about optimizing for our happiness and you know attempting to make sure that we get the best value on a contract. In many ways, what I think we actually should be thinking about is optimizing such that there is a equal level of compromise and unhappiness and dissatisfaction from everybody that is involved. If the government is a little bit unhappy with what they got, if the prime integrator is a little bit unhappy with how the system was architected and what they have to do, if the supply chain is a little bit unhappy with what's required, we probably actually are doing something that ultimately adds more value, goes faster, and delivers something that is better for ultimately what we have to go do. But it's more about the management of dissatisfaction than necessarily the management of satisfaction.
0: Uh, that's, uh, Bill, one of uh, the most thoughtful philosophical approaches I've heard in a long time on, on how to do this, uh, how to do this and do it right. Um, but you also raise a very important question, right? What's the balance in this ecosystem, uh, the technological development ecosystem? Uh, the role of government, the role of industry, the role of academia, um, you know, at, uh, at South by, but as well as uh, at the Navy League uh, conference uh, last week, we heard from folks who expressed frustration that, that the commercial industry now and, and startups and innovative companies are moving really quickly in developing capability that's actually superseding the same products that have been in development at government labs, whether for five years, 10 years, or 15 years. But the thing about it is every ecosystem adjusts to that, right? So that becomes their focus. There's funding, there's people, there's constituency, there's politics. So they, you know, you you create all of these bubbles that eventually end up sort of starving out progress and 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 become a wall, actually. Right. How how do what what are you know, you, you talked about dissatisfaction, but how do you get the right balance in this and and be able to sort of rip some band aids off and saying, hey, look, you know, technology changed, processes changed, Um, you know, this company or this group of companies may actually have the best answer here, right? What are some of the changes that have to happen in this system that actually ends up stifling change, right? Stifling or slowing progress.
1: Yep. No, it's a it's it's a great question, right? And and one that, that as a nation, as a globe, as an ecosystem, we we have to we have to noodle our way through, um, in ways that's going to be really important. Interestingly, and so I, I I'm not a historian, but I I enjoy reading historical references and trying to get smart and learning from from the past. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, President Eisenhower in his farewell speech famously warned about the growth of the, uh, the defense industrial complex, right? And that's the part of the speech that everyone remembers. In the same speech, the exact adjacent point that he warned about is actually the increasing role of effectively a massive R&D center. And the fact that you no longer have a tinkerer in their garage, which is capable of doing something that ends up having a national impact, but you have to be aligned with this, you know, big behemoth of, of, you know, in in part, I think he pointed to, you know, kind of the university R&D ecosystem that that had been growing up as well. And so part of it, I think, is we actually have we set the wrong expectation on what it means to be innovative. um, And so when you look at, you know, hey, I want innovation and I want something that's never been done before, and I want you to go build this new system. Um, What we hear out of that is, I want you to build me a new system, I want it to be a representative prototype that'll work in a representative environment, and I have to do everything required over 15 years to make sure that each of these individual little risks is burned down, and only by doing that in 15 years can I give you this big bang of this system that that shows up. the secondary part of it is that, that engineers are proud, right? And, and full disclosure, I'm a degreed engineer. As a slightly personal aside, our washing machine at home quit working, and I took the entire thing apart. We did not have a functioning washing machine for about three weeks, but I found the bearing in the back, and I managed to fix it. Uh, when my <laughs> wife listens to this podcast, she will most likely roll her eyes at that exact story, uh, right? But it's that, that engineering pride that only I can do this kind of a thing. But then, I think even though
0: even though the Maytag guy could probably have figured that out in about he, they the minutes. the
1: most likely someone that specializes in repairing uh you know repairing appliances probably could have had the entire job done in the course of just a couple of days, um, if not a couple of minutes, if not an hour or two. Um, I got it done and by golly, I showed that you know, a $20 part was the only thing that was wrong and we didn't indeed have to go spend $1,000 on a new whatever, um, right? But, but wrapped up in that is not only the, the what did it take to fix it, but it's the pride factor that goes with it, right? And so engineers intrinsically, I believe, are a proud group that want to solve that problem and demonstrate that they did. Um, what, what I would offer, though, from where I now sit is I learn almost nothing when my intuition is confirmed. The really interesting thing is what you learn when your intuition isn't confirmed. But as a nation, as a society globally, we like to publish results where we say, I did something new that no one else has ever done, and my intuition was confirmed. But what would happen if we started sharing all the times that something didn't work? And we started sharing more broadly why I don't think it worked and what maybe it would have taken to make it work. At which point you now can look at a small company, somebody very innovative, five, six people, and they can go, oh, well, I know how to solve that. And then near immediately, you get that coming as, and as, as an input into your system, um, right? Because I think the, the other side of the coin that you didn't hit on in your question that I think is equally important is, I have a, I have a small company, I have a group of people, this is a really innovative, really cool way of solving it. And we managed to make it work once and half the employees at our company have PhDs. That's really cool and that's really awesome, but that doesn't actually create nation-state deterrence value until you have it proliferated at scale into nearly every brigade in the Army or on the, you know, the majority of ships in the US Navy or the majority of aircraft that are that are operating by the Air Force, you know, the satellites by the Space Force. And I need that to be operated by a 19-year-old kid. And they need to be able to pick it up in a way that makes sense, that they're trained, that they know what to do when. That's actually how we get real deterrence and real value. And so you need that scale, but at the same time you need that scale, you also need the innovation. Too often we focus on, but I have a cool innovation and it didn't transition and shame on you, the ecosystem. But that ecosystem, I think, we generally don't talk about it as much, but it's looking for how to do it at scale. And we need something to happen the first time once, but we need a way that we can build it up so it goes out to all you know, 300 plus ships in the Navy and all the squadrons in the Air Force and all of the deltas um, in the Space Force and into every brigade in the Army. And as we think through how do we bring it over and how do we get it to scale, we have to get both sides of that problem right at the same time. So um, yeah. I, I, in my opinion, that's really critical to the question you just asked. Um, so how
0: is it? You get the speed and the scale, right? So oftentimes we have uh, demonstrators. We put investment in it. We, we, you know, sometimes we think of it as a solution, so we try to do it at scale, and it doesn't work. And then other times we end up in sort of experiment experimentation hell, right? They, they you know, I remember this challenge that uh, Frank Kendall had when he was the Undersecretary for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. He was trying to make sure these these legacy These giant programs that we had launched get on track on cost on time at the same time everybody was saying hey let's let a thousand flowers bloom and 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 challenge these programs and it's like okay guys i don't need you to start injecting new technology all over these programs right how's the what's the balance point on this bill and what's the right way to get it fast as and at scale because we have done this throughout history, right? I mean, we did it in World War II. We did it throughout the Cold War. So it's not like, you know, we necessarily have to do 12 years of of AOAs here before we get to something. What's the way to do it better, faster at scale? So as a
1: as as a simple way of of hopefully addressing uh, the majority of it, in in my opinion, there's two different things that we end up kind of spending our R and D budgets on. Um, the first one is, here's a, new, here's a new product, here's a new system, here's a new capability that I need to build, and I know what it's going to cost. I know what it's going to take. Ideally, there's, there's error bars of maybe it's going to go 5% faster, slower, 10%, right. but there's, there's relatively well-defined error bars. The secondary part, though, is I think there's a there there, but there's a bunch of things I don't know. And more so on that research side, too often, I think we end up spending more of that front end budget trying to get to something which feels like a system, a capability, a product, something that I can go out that I can interact with. But it's different if we poke on it and we say, what are the risks I have to burn down such that when I decide I want to do a new product, a new system, a new capability, I can do it quickly. Um, as a bit of an aside and a C story, I remember at DARPA as a program manager, one of our, uh, one of our consultants came trotting into my office on a Monday morning. And he said, Bill, I was thinking about your program over the weekend. And if you don't go do this, this, and this, I I think I'm going to go to the boss and say that we should kill your program. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I I think those are really good risks. But if we don't go do A, B, and C, I'm going to go with you to say we should kill my program. (laughs) And he stood there in my doorway for a second. And he looked and he went, you know, yeah, the three risks that you're burning down first are more important than the three that I was thinking about on Sunday afternoon. Keep, Keep doing what you're doing. Um, Right. right? And he he then went, you know, trotting down the hallway and he probably, you know, stuck his nose into someone else's uh, office to talk about it. But it's only when you know what is the hardest part of this problem that I have to burn down first. And if I can't solve that part, it's going to fail in two years anyway. So let's figure that out up front. I don't need to spend two years of time and money to try to develop something which is ultimately going to work if I can figure out what the right question is to ask up front. But it's really hard to figure out those questions up front, and it is much less enjoyable to say, you know, here is one piece of data on one particular chart in one particular deck that said, everything we were working on is going to fail in two years, so I think we should shut down the program now, take the money, give it back to something else that has a better chance of success, right? And so going back to that, engineers as a group, we are a prideful community. We want to see that thing the whole way through and we want to keep working on it until we find a way to make it successful. I think it's different if we pose the question, how do we burn down risk as quickly as we can? Or Earlier in the conversation, you basically said that this is
0: about doing thinking more clearly about what the problem is. right? I could even argue that when you went back to World War II, right, we didn't have computational fluid dynamics. We didn't have a lot of you know, the technological tools that we have today. And so people actually thought through the problem, right? They prioritize better. Like what is doable, what is not doable? Um, You know, whereas now we can get very, very ambitious and ultimately we decide, well, the vehicle's too heavy, so we'll put titanium suspension components in it to save weight, for example, right? You might argue if if that's what you're getting to, you might've kind of missed the plot a little bit on it. Um, What do we need to do to think better Because to your point, you know, there are things that sound great to us and we just keep spinning our wheels on it. And we're we're waiting for a Nobel Prize breakthrough to make it work. And it's like, you know, maybe if we just thought about the problem differently, we might have a more practical approach to it. Right. That the solution isn't always a technological solution. It's actually a thinking solution,
1: um, and and as we as we think our way through the problem, too often we interpret a policy or a process as a constraint, and not as something that actually was written by a human that can be changed if changing it is the right thing to do, um, right? And so when we think about the overall speed of capability development, what's an acceptable level of risk, um, right? And and. We, we can, we, if, if we're doing something that is going to be a manned mission where it's, you know, there's going to be a physical crew that is on board that platform, we should have a really good confidence before we go out and we do something. Um, I, I like to joke that I fly radio-controlled helicopters. In actuality, I crash radio-controlled helicopters, but I very briefly fly them. Um, but every time that I crash one, I learn something from why did it crash? What did I do wrong? What is it that resulted in that occurring? If there, if there was a crew on that, it would be a totally different way that I would that I would think about risk and what it meant to you know to have, have something crash and break. But because it's it weighs a couple pounds and it's you know safely inside of my own yard, it's something that I can do and I can iterate incredibly quickly on. Right. And so when we think about a, a defense program and we think about what is the consequence if it works and what's the consequence if it doesn't. Um, I grew up in the electronic warfare world, largely thinking about, you know, how to take a roadside bomb, that IED, improvised explosive device in Iraq or Afghanistan, and get it not to be able to detonate as U.S. troops or Iraqi troops or Afghan forces were, were driving by, were operating on patrol in proximity to this thing. The consequence, if I inadvertently jammed the wrong signal, was somebody maybe couldn't send a text message or couldn't, you know, make a phone call or you know some other wireless device that they had wasn't going to work in a way that they expected as they wanted to be able to talk to someone. Okay, well, that's, that's inconvenient if I delay the flow of information by 10 seconds that somebody cared about. But the consequence if we didn't jam that signal was somebody gets blown up and killed. I, I will delay the flow of information to somebody by 10 seconds if it saves someone's life. That's the right decision to make, but you can get wrapped around the axle of, I want to do this and I want it to work perfectly, and you just keep iterating and iterating on it. But if you do that, you never feel the capability that actually protects thousands of people and allows them to go home that night to their to their families. How do you navigate
0: what is now a global technological base, right? The United States has this perception of we are the preeminent technological power. But the proliferation of technology is, is actually allowing a lot of people to make some very, very sophisticated capabilities. Look at the Ukrainians. Organically, they are building, modifying commercial drones, uh, You know, evolve and develop weapons in a, in a way that I think most people would find startling. Um, China is a first rate technology developer, not just a copier and imitator. Uh, Right. I mean, something that was, you know, a moniker that was put on Japan, for example, another nation that has been technologically very innovative. How do you do this, tap this, access this global technology base, but also do an understanding that you have sovereign interests you need to preserve from a military capability standpoint, right? I mean, whether we like it or not, an enormous number of Chinese chips are still making it into US weapons systems, in part because so far downstream they're getting incorporated. We're trying to catch them. We're trying to stop it, but it that's not that easy to do. How do we need to think about the whole global technology ecosystem? so so to, to I, take I, advantage I, of it but protect ourselves at the same time?
1: yeah, so i I think about it through through what does it mean to be effective and what does it mean to be efficient? um right and in two words that, that in the grand scheme of things are pretty pretty darn simple to say. But during times of relative peace, right, and, and we can argue over, you know, are we in phase zero, one, two, whatever of, of a conflict. But, you know, today in the United States, we are fortunate we live in a time of relative peace and we therefore have access to a global supply chain. Um, practically what that means is we need to be efficient with our resources, right? We, we have to make sure that we are doing the right thing in a way that allows us at the lowest price to get the most value into that system to get it done in a timely fashion. At the same time that we're doing that, we have to make sure that we have access during a time of a conflict to something that will be effective, right? And so if, um, right, and, and in the interwar period between World War I and Two, I don't think that anybody said, man, I, I'm just you know sitting back waiting for the next you know, global war to occur. But you have to be prepared in case that does. If there was something that resembled a World War III what is there that we would want to do to think about our supply chain, where when the chips are down and we don't care what it costs, that our national, you know, capability is at stake and the at stake, and the survival of our nation is at stake. What is there that we need to do to get that right? Um, I'm going to re-record that paragraph really quick. So, sure. right when when our national survival is at stake, what is there that we need to do to make sure that we have a supply chain? that works, that is effective, right? And that's very different than efficient. During a conflict, the acceptable level of risk, the acceptable level of this is what this costs, it's going to be different. But we need something that today we can use in a way that is efficient. And during a conflict, we can use in a way that is effective. Um, And candidly, I think what that means, right, when you look at that overall globalization, um, when you look at what is occurring in Europe today, there are places that used to be very easy to get materials in and out of that are now very hard to get materials in and out of in comparison. If something was to happen in either the South or the East China Sea, there are some really, it's, it's actually fascinating how much of the world is still based off of geography, um, right? When you look at the Straits in Singapore, it is amazing the amount of global trade that goes through them. When you look at the natural boundaries that are formed by both the first and the second island chain, it is fascinating what that, uh, what that begins to reveal but then look at the other nations that a bunch of our different supplies are coming from, right, the the advanced display technology that goes into A, the screens that I'm talking to you on today, uh, right, but B, into a variety of military systems. Are those coming out of South Korea? Are those coming out of Japan? What what happens if, right, or how do we want to rebalance and rethink about a global supply chain so we're making the best use of what's in North America, but also South America? What's happening in Europe? What's happening in Africa? What's happening in Asia? What is there that makes that both simultaneously efficient today, but also allows it to be effective into the future? Um, and the only part that I would uh, I would leave you with in parting is Bismarck and kind of that era of great statesmen, um, you know, at the tail end of the 19th century, uh, believed that they had built an ecosystem in continental Europe that was stable. And as we ultimately discovered going into World War One, they were not correct on that. So what I just said, I wonder if that is not a reflection on what a guy like Bismarck would have said, you know, 150 years ago, and if there's actually a massive flaw in my thinking, but that could be a great topic to explore in a future
0: podcast. I, I think it's a great topic to explore in a future uh, podcast. Uh, and, and, and you make a great point, right? I mean, this conflict, I think, has focused uh, a lot of people's minds on, um, you know, it can happen. So we convinced ourselves it'll never happen. We convince ourselves that small numbers of extremely high-end capability uh, will work, uh, and then we're realizing that vast amounts of capability gets chewed up remarkably quickly. A large number of people can die in a very short amount of time. Uh, that there can be brutality, and again, back to your central point, Bill. You know, the location, location, location. Geography has always mattered, and you're being a little bit disingenuous if you begin to regard it as not uh, mattering, right? Uh, so, um, and, and again, also national interest, right? Uh, we saw that unfortunately during the pandemic, uh, you know, people will hoard masks and they may hoard vaccines and they may hoard ventilators, um, you know, even, 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 if, even if they don't have a need for it and their ally and partner is really desperate for it. Uh, Bill, can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us and really look forward to having you back to be able to continue this as part of a series maybe. And maybe we can bring some mutual friends in uh, on the conversation as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Yep, thank you for the invitation.